Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR, talent, and leadership communities to you. For more episodes and the latest articles covering what's new in the world of work, visit hrgazette.com, subscribe and follow us on social media. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this episode, we're going to talk about ways to maximize the success of new leaders. My awesome, fantastic returning guest today is Bill Treasurer, Chief Encouragement Officer over at Giant Leap Consulting. He is a big proponent for courage, a writer, a speaker, and a consultant. And Bill's on a mission to build workplace courage to deliver fantastic results. He's the originator of the organizational development practice of courage building and the author of Courageous Leadership, a program for using courage to transform the workplace. The program has been taught in 11 countries since its launch in 2011. He's also the author of the international bestseller, Courage Goes to Work, How to Build Backbones, Boost Performance and Get Results. And his latest book, what, there's another one? There absolutely is. His latest book, released in September 2022, so about a month or so ago as we record this today, is called Leadership Two Words at a Time, Simple Truths for Leading Complicated People. Hey, Bill, it's my pleasure to have you back on the show. Oh, Bill, I'm so looking forward to spending time with you and your listeners again. Thanks for having me back. It's been too long. We need to make this more of a regular thing. You are uh, you're someone I admire in the space. I love your opinions. You you create awesome content and you educate the HR and leadership masses, sir. So kudos to you. Why don't we start with a brief reintroduction to our listeners? Why don't you take sort of a minute or so and tell them all about yourself? Sure. Well, thanks. So I started my business some 20 years ago, Giant Leap Consulting. We're a courage building company. I've been fortunate to have worked with some pretty renowned clients and customers over that time. And every single engagement that we have, I learn from the leaders that I get to work with. I often work with new leaders, emerging leaders, and high potential leadership programs. And I accumulated all that knowledge from all of you, all the listeners, all the readers, all the uh, leaders that I've been fortunate to have worked with. And I took all that lesson and I put it into the new book, Leadership Two Words at a Time. So courage building company for 20 years. Prior to that, I worked for Accenture. I was Accenture's first full-time internal executive coach. Before that, I did outdoor experiential team building, facilitated some 300 team building programs for renowned clients uh, before that graduate school. So I've been doing a lot of stuff over the last 30 years, but most of it has been focused on working with leaders, making sure that they are showing up with good values, good character, and courage so that they lead the workforce in the right direction. We'll be right back after this message from today's sponsoring partner. Are you struggling to attract talent during this great resignation? AppCast is a global provider of recruitment, advertising technology, and enterprise-managed services for talent acquisition. The company is a pioneer of programmatic job advertising, which uses clever algorithms to help employers increase engagement with qualified candidates by showing people the right job ads at the right time in the right places. Learn more and request a demo at appcast.io. Appcast, job advertising, made simple. 
Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. So let's talk a bit more about your new book then. Uh, as I mentioned, it was released uh, very recently in September 2022, and it's geared at the new leader. Why is the transition bill in, into leadership one of the one of the most challenging moves that a team member will make in their career? We often start out as an individual contributor, and we do a good job. We're really productive. We manage and prioritize things well, and we have good discipline. And we, as an individual contributor, get noticed by somebody, probably a boss. And they say, you know what? That person does a really good job. They exemplify the company's values. Let's put them in a leadership role. Except that when you're an individual contributor, it's all about your own productivity. It's about managing and leading yourself. When you're leading other people, it's an entirely different discipline. It takes doing right by others to help them be productive. So it's a focus away from yourself. That transition is hard. What happens is a lot of people try to rely on what they had done before that had gotten them to be successful, all that individual productivity. So what I find, Bill, is that a lot of people, as they move into that leadership role, they feel that they need to know everybody's job better than they know it in their individual roles. And they start doing some of the people's jobs for them. And it lends itself towards micromanagement and the inability to delegate. It is the most common malady that I see with new leaders is the inability to delegate because they're still used to individual contribution kind of work instead of how to get and maximize the productivity of the team itself. So it's a really difficult transition to make to learn that it's no longer about you. It's about maximizing the potential and productivity of the team that you're leading. Mintz Global Screening is a leading provider of background screening solutions. Customers rely on their professional teams to provide them with vital intel to make informed business decisions on a candidate's suitability or risk level. Their bilingual specialists are highly trained and adept at finding the information necessary to manage your risks and avoid losses. Learn more at mintsglobalscreening.com. Follow up there. Why is micromanaging uh, bad? What are the what are the negative consequences when when a when a leader, a new leader, any leader, uh, feels that they have to micromanage and they they just can't really get the get to grips with delegating? And again, it's so common. I, I'm fortunate that I've gotten to work with thousands of leaders over time most of them new leaders as they're transitioning into their first management role where they're leading a small team of you know 10 people or below and it's so common to micromanage and the challenge with that is you be you start to become seen as over controlling people feel like you're caught up in their grill that they have no room to, for their own creativity. And they start to get this idea of learned helplessness. They're like, well, why should I try so hard? My micromanaging boss is going to do it anyway, or he's going to second guess my work anyway. So why do I need to give the best effort? Because it's the second effort that they're looking for, and they're going to do the first effort for me anyway. So it has, it has really negative um, connotations and implications, and it will plateau your career. You will never be able to lead at scale if you don't learn how to delegate. The challenge, Bill, is as that individual contributor moves into the leadership role, with those tendencies towards micromanagement, nobody ever hands them a playbook about how to lead. 
There's no, no sort of instruction manual, manual. So they sort of grope their way through it. And I find the most common way a leader finally learns the, uh, to delegate is oftentimes through capitulation. They get so subsumed, so overwhelmed, so uh, weighed down by the responsibilities of their job and doing the tasks of other people that they end up getting, they have no choice. They either surrender and capitulate or they're going to be out of a leadership role. So at some point, sheer desperation will take over. And hopefully the leader will learn that I have to give some stuff up to my team. I have to spend individual time with each member of my team, ensuring that they know how to do the job well so that I feel confident enough that I can release my control and allow them to do their job without me hovering over them like a helicopter parent. And just on that communication piece, uh, you mentioned there towards the end of your answer, it's important to have one-on-ones to sit down with each and every member of your team, I, th I think is what you said there. Um, what, what kind of proportion of the conversations, the, the communication should be one-on-one -on -one, uh, when it comes to a new leader and their, their, their new reports? And what, what percentage, what extent should be group communication? At the individual level, there's two kinds of important conversations that you need to have with each one of your direct reports. There's the kind that's tactical and operational, technical, about the skills of the person's job and your job to help coach them along, provide training to help them be successful in their individual role. And your individual conversation around that is around performance of their job. The second conversation that you need to have with people on a regularly occurring basis, and again, one-on-one, -on -one, are 15 minutes every few weeks or so just to check in with the person and to ensure that you're building trust with the person. It's not at that second conversation about statusing where are they on their jobs and their tasks. It's more about how's it going? Tell me what's going on in your outside life. Is there anything that I can be doing for you to help you get to where you want to get to in your career? And it's not in your office. That conversation is more informal. Maybe it's over lunch, but it's about building the trust between you and the individual. So there's two individual conversations. One is about performance and the tactics of their job, the skill, the um, enrichment, if you will. And the second one is about trust building between you and them. You have to separate those two things. You don't want to do both of them at the same time. And then in terms of working with the team, you have to have your regularly occurring, what I would call status meeting, that's checking in typically on a Monday, whether you're doing it virtually or if you're doing it in person, it's getting the team together to look at the week ahead and projecting out, all right, what needs to get done this week? You have to have that status meeting and you should have a check-in meeting with your team later on in the week to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of leaders setting expectations, and that's super, super important. The, t the thing that we don't often talk about is the, the point in time where you have to have basically the inspection, and that means to track progress, take an in-progress review, take a pulse check on where are we on the items that we said that we were going to get done, and that's not micromanagement. That's just management. It's responsible behavior. Okay. Uh, I can tell that you're a fan of those Monday morning meetings. That's a whole different discussion, but we're not going to go down that route today. Um, now then, you and uh, the Giant Leap team have conducted hundreds 
of corporate workshops focused on strengthening leadership skills, improving team performance, accelerating innovation, and helping executives behave more courageously. What, what are some of those common objections, the objections that you hear from established leaders? We've just been speaking about new leaders, but in terms of those who are already in a role, they've maybe been in the role for a few years, they feel pretty comfortable. Um, when it comes to, what, what are those objections when it comes to changing their behaviors to, to get better results? I find that most every leader that I work with recognizes they're on a journey. And even if they're sort of in the later stages of their career, if you're a leader, you are wanting to improve. Uh, Jim Cousins and Barry Posner, who wrote the Leadership Challenge, which sold 9 million copies, they said that leaders constantly need to ask themselves a two-word question. What's better? What's better? And I find my work with leaders that most of them do want to improve. I mean, you do run into the occasional leader who gets fossilized, who starts to get a little too enamored with their title and their position in the company. And um, sometimes they can be a little bit resistant and they can, they can refer back to the past too much. Um, I worked with an organization recently where, that was having a new leader come in. A new leader was taking the baton from the leader that was exiting except the exiting leader as part of their succession was still around to support the development of the new leader until they got their sea legs. The challenge was that that was useful up into a point. At some point, the baton passing was taking too long. And in fact, the old guard leader was now becoming an obstruction to the new person trying to establish their own footprint. So we need the institutional wisdom of the leader who might be exiting. And we wanna make sure that it's a soft exit. Um, that said, you also don't want what we call it, uh, the pastor in the pew. And that is if you get a new pastor in your church, but the exiting pastor is still there and they're like, uh, we tried that one before. So don't use that particular sermon, but, but go ahead, go on with your sermon. I didn't mean to interrupt. So we have to watch this from exiting, um, senior leaders, but we definitely want their established wisdom before they, you know, leave. Let's get back to talking about uh, new leaders for a moment. Uh, tell me a bit about where HR fits in, Bill. Uh, how can HR help to change the mindset of new leaders and to equip them with what they need to, you know, for that transition from, from employee to, to leader? You know, HR plays a really central role. The most important thing, I think, and I think that you'd agree with this, Bill, is that HR needs to make sure that they are business-minded. They need to know the levers of the business. Uh, an essential thing to know about the business is how does the business make or lose money or acquire and keep customers? Because those are the most central things to business. Even in nonprofit organizations, you need to know the financial levers of the organizations because that is what your own senior leaders often fixate on. So if you don't have business mindedness, you'll be seen as transactional which I think, which is the gravity sometimes for HR, is that they move themselves into being a more transactional role of dealing with things like the HR legalistic uh, types of things. So being business-minded is central to HR and recognize, and what that means is obviously learning all of the different levers of the business. And it also means recognizing that oftentimes you are the voice of the people and you have to be the cultural standard bearers you have to be very clear about what the cultural values are and how those values are being reinforced through the performance management system, 
and then you have to support that yourself in your HR role. Part of it too is being a real strong advocate of and sponsor of leadership development, however that takes shape in your organization. But your organization needs to have some way of developing your leaders so that they are not left to grope by themselves and that they are supported through training and development. Those would be some of the things that I would say that are essential to HR. Uh, and, and it all goes back to not relegating yourself to doing just the transactional things associated with um, compliance with legal things. Bill, we do advertise this show as uh, insights, uh, tips and anecdotes uh, with, with leaders in the HR and related world of work. So on that point, let, let's let's see if I can get an anecdote or two from you. Uh, can, can you share any stories about leaders who've made a big positive impact on your career? Thank you for asking. So I came out of graduate school about 30 plus years ago, and I had very idealistic views of what a leader should be. You know, oftentimes we come out of university and we're a little bit, you know, full of the of uh, our fists are raised in the air. We're going to change the world just by ourselves, And we have really high expectations of what a leader is. And I was in a constant state of low level disappointment because no leader actually lived up to those high standards that I was reading about in textbook. Uh, and then then I got to work for a leader at Accenture and his name was Heinz Brannan. His name is Heinz Brannan. Heinz remains a role model and a mentor to me today. What made Heinz so unique was this, this wonderful mixture of sheer intelligence. He was whip smart, uh, had an MBA and an engineer, uh, engineering degree, and he knew about business. He was super business minded, and it was balanced with emotional intelligence. He had strong uh, emotional capacity, empathy. He understood the cadence of the workforce. He understood the importance of culture. So he had this whip smart business mind, but this great people sense too, and that mixture. What made him so important to me is two different things. One is he gave me a shot. He didn't see me as invisible. He noticed me and he gave me opportunities and to develop myself, to grow, to be a little bit in over my head, to do things I hadn't done before. He believed in me, he gave me a shot, and then here's the second thing, and he gave me the feedback that I needed to make the corrections so that I could be a better professional. He held me accountable to myself, and he made me believe in myself, he made me a better professional. And some of that feedback, by the way, stung my ears. Some of that feedback was hard for me to hear because he was very plain spoken. He didn't want to couch things or put a lot of velvet around the message. Sometimes the message had a sting if it was going to get through to me, but he would do it because he cared about me. And the, one of the greatest moments for me, Bill, was last December. He was honored by his own university where he went to school some probably 45 years ago. And he was part of the commencement ceremony. There were 20,000 people there, including his family. And one person who wasn't his family, I was the only non-family member, I got to watch him get an honorary doctorate degree from his university for all the ways that he had given back to the community and to the university itself. He is a role model for me and a mentor to me even today. I spoke with him this week and I haven't worked for him for some 20 years. 
I love that story. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's 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 a wonderful, warm human anecdote, sir. Thank you. Um, hey, on, on a completely different note, I noticed that uh, Steve Romano, ex-chief FBI hostage negotiator, works with your leadership clients. I saw this on your LinkedIn profile recently. Tell me a bit about that. What What's the fit? Aha. Good question. You know, a lot of times we want to design, my company will design, it's almost like a bespoke kind of consulting engagements, uh, particularly leadership events. So we design, develop, and deliver leadership programs. Oftentimes those programs are like two years in length, where we get together every other month for what we would call a leadership summit. We want to make sure that every single summit, it reinforces a leadership uh, important ideal trait attribute something related to leadership and we want to make sure that that day has great content lots of small group breakouts and case studies and interaction and we also want the event to be memorable so instead of bill treasurer lecturing at them all day or giving them outside best practice content that we also want to make sure that we make it memorable by bringing in outside speakers who they otherwise never would have had the opportunity to hear from so we've had NASA astronauts, we've had fighter pilots, we've had Navy SEALs, uh, we've had a, a world record holding athlete who traversed the Appalachian Trail faster than any human, and it's a woman. Um, and we have uh, Ed Veasters, who's been to the top of Mount Everest seven times. He's a great speaker, but occasionally we get the good fortune to bring in Steve Romano, who was the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. In fact, I was with Steve this past week. And what's useful about bringing Steve in is we'll be doing a session oftentimes on conflict and negotiation. And by taking the experience of the somewhat outlandish, uh, the participants in our workshop will never be probably in a hostage situation, but they will be in situations where they have tense moments, where they have a lot of stress, where they're having to communicate to somebody about something that they want and the other person wants something different. So you take a bit of the, if you will, outlandish, something you'll never experience, but you draw universal lessons from that experience. And it's interesting. You would think that Steve Romano might be this like, you know, hard charging, you know, point your finger in your face, tell you this is what you're going to do kind of person. Not at all. The FBI is was on and is on the leading edge of some really interesting work when it comes to things like negotiation as it relates to emotional empathy, emotional awareness. Sometimes they call it tactical empathy. He talks about emotional leveling. He talks about the importance of you will never be able to reason with another person until you bring rationality to the conversation. So people get emotionally, what he says, inebriated. We sometimes get drunk with our emotions, whether it be anger or frustration or being tense, anxious in this moment. And that's not the time to negotiate with somebody. We need to dissipate that. We need to help that person come to a place of emotional sobriety. We ourselves, and a lot of the time that he's uh, with us, he's giving us strategies to manage our own emotional a awareness and b bringing ourselves back to emotional sobriety 
so we have a lot to do in that session talking about emotional intelligence and empathy and tactical empathy and questions to use to understand the position and viewpoint of the other person. You would never think that you'd be learning these things from a hostage negotiator, but this is actually what it takes to negotiate through a really tense conversation uh, and situation. Okay, wonderful. And just finally for today, Bill, how can our listeners connect with you and learn more about Giant Leap Consulting? Best way to get in touch with me and Giant Leap Consulting, you can go to couragebuilding.com. It's really easy to remember, couragebuilding.com. And you can also go to giantleapconsulting.com. And anyone can get in touch with me personally at btreasurer at giantleapconsulting.com. What a great pleasure to speak to you and your listeners again, Bill. And I hope to get to talk to you again sooner than we took for this conversation to happen. I guarantee it, Bill. It's been too long and we will not make that mistake again, sir. And we're going to get you on some other pods that I'm involved with as well, because I think you're fantastic. And that just leaves me to say for today, Bill Treasurer, you absolute superstar. Thank you very much for returning to the show. Thank you, buddy. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Chat Podcast. There are hundreds of conversations with business experts available for free on the HR Gazette website, Apple, Spotify, and all the main platforms. And remember to like, subscribe, and follow us on social media.